0: Hello, I'm Michael Williams, Artistic Director of Sydney Writers Festival. I hope you enjoy this conversation from our podcast series.
1: Hello, everyone. I would like to acknowledge that we are on Gadigal land um, and pay my respects to the traditional custodians of this land, the Gadigal of the Eora Nation, um, and to remember that uh, they were the first storytellers of this place and the work we're doing now is part of a long continuum of storytelling, creativity, and um, imaginative work. Uh, My name is Rowanna Gonsalves. I am an Indian-Australian writer. I also work as a lecturer in creative writing at the University of New South Wales. I have the great honour of facilitating a conversation with two of the biggest names in Australian literature, Michelle de Kretzer and Christos (laughs) Chalkes. Michelle de Kretzer and Christos Chalkes appear at the Sydney Writers' Festival thanks to the generous support of David Feit and Catherine Norman. Um, I'm going to provide an introduction to de Kretzer and Chalkes shortly. My introductions are a little long. Apologies, you will hear my voice um, for a bit in the first few minutes, because I would like to do justice to these two um, national treasures and to their works of wonderful, great literature. Um, I will then spend most of this hour making a few noises with an upward inflection to suggest their questions and give over to Christos and Michelle to um, talk about their latest books. And towards the end of the conversation, we will um, open up the session to questions from you. Um, And after this session, of course, Michelle and Christos will be available to sign copies of their beautiful books in the main foyer. Uh, I just want to say uh, hello to our um, audiences listening in from across Australia, I think, or New South Wales, but lots of people all over over the world, let's just say. Um, I was going to introduce Michelle and Christos, but really you all know them, award-winning writers. They've been long-listed for the Booker Prize. They should have won those years. I don't know what the judges <laughs> were thinking. Uh, they've been reviewed in the New York Times, Times Literary Supplement, you name it. You know, They've won every award there is to win in Australia between them. Uh, I want to, I want to t- tell you a little bit about their books, though. Um, Michelle's latest book, Scary Monsters, was published in 2021. Scary Monsters is a novel in two parts. A novel with two covers. You can see the two covers here. Um, A novel that you must turn upside down midway through the book in order to read the rest of it. The title of the book, Scary Monsters, refers to three scary monsters, racism, misogyny, and ageism. But I think, like in most of Michelle de Kretz's work, uh, there is another monster that is being skewered in this book, and that is the fourth scary monster, the state, the abuse of state power and its monstrous, frightening effects. This book metaphorically and literally turns the novel upside down just as migration has upended her character's lives. As one of the characters says in the book, when my family emigrated, it felt as if we'd been stood on our heads. In a review of Scary Monsters published in The Guardian, the reviewer B.J. Silcox notes, Michelle de Kretzer's novel demands tactile participation. Scary Monsters is split sharply down the middle. One half tells a realist tale of the early 1980s, The other conjures a gruesome and plausible vision of Australia's near future. Either could function as the book's opening act, and De Kretzer places the choice in our dog-earing hands. The author turns the proverb into a dare. Just try to judge this book by its cover. (laughs) Which cover, you know? (laughs) One half of the book is focused on a character called Lily, Lily's family migrated to Australia from Asia when she was a teenager, now in the 1980s, the now of that section. She's teaching in the south of France. She makes friends, observes the treatment handed out to North African immigrants, and is creeped out by her downstairs neighbor. All the while, Lily is striving to be a bold, intelligent woman, like Simone de Beauvoir. The other half of the book is focused on a character called Lyle, Lyle works for a sinister government department in near-future Australia. An Asian immigrant, he fears repatriation and embraces Australian values. He's also preoccupied by his ambitious wife, his wayward children, and his strong-minded elderly mother, Ivy, who is one of my favorite characters in the book. Islam has been banned in the country, the air is smoky from a permanent fire zone, and one pandemic has already run its course. The novel asks the question which comes first, the future or the past? Christos's book, his latest work, Seven and a Half, is the book that we'll be discussing today. Uh, The title Seven and a Half is inspired by the Italian director Federico Fellini's surrealist comedy film Eight and a Half, which um, came out in 1963, about a director who cannot complete his latest film. Uh, Christos Cholkis' book Seven and a Half is metafictional in that it is a story about stories, a book about the process of composition, where the imaginative labor of character design and development is laid bare on the page. Seven and a half is also auto-fictional, in the sense that the author deliberately and explicitly plays with autobiographical elements in in the novel, with factual material, such as giving the first-person narrator the same name as the author. In Seven and a Half, the narrator is called Christo, there's an S missing at the start at least, deliberately so, although without giving too much away, the autofictional element is accentuated further as the narrative progresses. This book concerns itself with memory, with dreams, and the sudden return of memory, and its presentation as material for fiction. This book is also concerned with the idea of beauty, Um, and I will I'd like to ask Christos a little bit about that later on in the conversation. I will come back to that. Uh, but for now, um, just a little bit more about the book. A man called Christo arrives at a house on the coast to write a book. Separated from his lover and family and friends, he finds the solitude he craves in the pyrotechnic beauty of nature, just as the world he has shut out is experiencing a cataclysmic shift. The preoccupations that have galvanized him and his work fall away and he becomes lost in memory and beauty. Christo begins to tell us a story uh, about a retired porn star who has made an offer he can't refuse for the sake of his family and his future. And so he returns to the world he fled years before, all too aware of the danger of opening the door to past temptations and long-buried desires. This book has been called a breathtakingly audacious novel about finding joy and beauty in a raging and punitive world, about the refractions of memory and time, and most subversive of all, about the mystery of art and its creation. As I was reading both these books, knowing that I had to interview the writers at our grand and glorious Sydney Writers' Festival, and thank you all for coming here uh, this afternoon, Um, and and giving us an hour of your precious time, um, I asked myself a key question, a question that you no doubt are all asking yourselves right now. What on earth do these two books have in common? Um, And the follow-up question, full of terror and debilitating fear of failure, how am I I going to make this session cohere um, in, uh, in a way that does justice to both these works? Um, And as I asked myself these questions in the middle of the night with the wolf at the door, uh, the answer came to me. Of course, what both De Kretzer and Chalkas are doing with their latest books is actually doing what the novel as a form has always intrinsically demanded of its creators, to make it new. To make it new in content, but especially in form. To make it new for themselves as writers, but also for us as readers, there is an irresistible urge at the heart of both these books, very different though they may be from each other, um, to play in the process of composition, to play with form, but also to invite us as readers to play. And in doing so, both these novels invite the reader into an imaginary world where the darkness of our contemporary realities, past, present, and future, are molded and shaped with a beautiful lightness of touch, shaping our reading experience to be one of wonder and delight, full of provocation and the destabilization of certainty, as well as, I have to say, a chilling destabilization of the idea of finitude. As de Kretzer's book asks, Which comes first, the future or the past? As Chalkas's book suggests, neither the past nor the present is ever finished. On this note, I would now like to ask uh, Michelle and Christos uh, a few questions about the form of their work, the stylistic choices they have made uh, in order to create these absolutely stunning books um, of literature. I'd like to begin with Michelle. Michelle, would you please tell us a little bit about why you chose to write Scary Monsters in two parts? Um, I will come back to the question on perspective and voice a little bit later on, but I'd love to hear from you about your intentions uh, in terms of the novel as a form and what you were trying to do with it. Okay,
2: well, thank you. And um, I think you covered um, some of that beautifully in your introduction when you said, you know, it's to do with... um, Life's being turned upside down because both narratives are narrated by Asian migrants to Australia. But particularly thinking of the novel as a form, um, I think it's no accident that Christos and I are both playing with form at a certain stage in our careers and trying to make it new. So yes, it was that um, wish to turn the novel as a form upside down. Because when we think of a novel, we probably think of a single continuous narrative, with you know continuity, um, not just of narrative but you know um, unity of of style, of theme, and so on. So I thought I would try writing a novel which was radically discontinuous, not only in terms of the story, but in terms of You know, the voice, um, the style, and, you know, what it was trying to, what each uh, uh, setting, um, chronology, everything.
1: Um,
2: uh, But it's interesting, because I think um, more and more, and I I don't know if you agree with this, Christos, but especially as I've been talking about this book, I've come to think that um, really form functions um, like a suit of armor. You know, it constrains you. It means you can't do everything you would like to do. But it's also a form of protection. Okay? And when you break form, well, you know, maybe something new can come out of that. Um, But also, you're left with something broken. So how a reader perceives that depends on how willing they are to see something new in something that has been Broken, and I, I kind of like that because not only does it give a reader an awful amount of agency in deciding, you know, how this how this book works and how this functions as a novel, um, but also it means that, you know, our easy consumption of fiction is is interrupted just for a little while because I think capitalism just thrives on, promotes, um, markets, markets, facilitates smooth consumption. And that applies to cultural products, um, no less than to um, any other commodity. And so I think, I hope um, this broken book um, serves as kind of grit that might just stick in your throat a little bit and make you think about what is it that you are consuming?
3: I'm, I'm so glad you said that, Michelle, because um, I, I was saying to Michelle um, earlier in the green room, you know, in the conversation, that actually I think the, a part of the moment I not you know, the, of seven and a half becoming right was a conversation that we had behind one of these walls when we were doing a, a session that I loved on Patrick White together, and then you said to me, you know, that you thought that we only have a finite number of books in us. And that has stayed with me for four years now. Is it four years, right? And I've <laughs> found you know, it. Yeah, it has, because Sweet Thing, which is the story within the story that is in Seven and a Half, is a story that's been with me as I write about in the book for a long time. So is it one of the... You know, But I've never found the right form in which to tell it. I thought it came to me as a film. And uh, I did... Uh, I just realised... over the last period of my life that though I so passionately love the art form of cinema, I don't have the necessary skills to be a director, not for that kind of narrative work. That's not my craft. My craft is this that we do. So in a way, your challenge, and in fact, you know, you didn't, it just, it, it inspired me to think, well, how do I tell the story? And I think that's been going in my head. The other reason I think about the Patrick White session, and this has got to do with what you just said about we're not only writers, we're readers, right? So I did, I spent a year reading Patrick White, and it was one of the most wonderful experiences to actually go into a writer that you adore and actually see the trajectory of it. And, if, and I've been doing that over the last period. So I did, after that, I I read all of Virginia Woolf and I discovered in reading The Waves, for example, one of the greatest works in the English language. But it is hard. It demands of you as a reader because she's doing something with the form that you have to put... You have to do an equal work as a a reader for that workbook's beauty to be revealed, Mm -hmm. right? And then two years ago, I I went back to a writer who was an... in huge, enormous influence on me as not only a writer and reader, but also, I think, as a young gay man, which was Jean Genet. And I start the book with an epigram from from Genet. And again, I discovered in Genet that I had to do this work. I was reminded of the work. I. And I, I think that's exactly right. There's, this, there's the safety of form. And, we, you know, we've both done that. And we've all done that. But it was almost like that re-reading and re-reading so closely again and realising what it was that I first glimpsed as a younger reader made me realise I can take a risk. And that risk is both what I, Christos Chalkas, do, but what we want you guys to do as readers and what we want to do as readers.
1: Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, beautiful. Absolutely. You both um, have taken risks and, in doing so, have invited us, us to take risks as readers Uh, in order to uh, put in the imaginative labor that we as readers need to bring to the reading experience. Um, And I want to ask you both about that idea of risk in terms of the use of perspective, uh, in terms of the use of um, voice. one of the similarities I think it's a superficial one, but one of the similarities uh, between um, Christos's seven and a half" and Michelle de Cretz's uh, "Scary Monsters," is that they are written in the first person. Um, I think the similarity is superficial because in Michelle's work, the first person is uh, from having read uh, Michelle's other work, mainly written in the third person, this is strikingly different, uh, but also it's a very focused finesse, first-person perspective. Um, in Christos's use of the first person, um, there is a deliberate slippage between the authorial eye and the narratorial eye. Um, and so in that sense, the first person is more capacious. Um, I was wondering if, Michelle, you could talk a little bit about your use of the first person and why. Okay, thank you. <laughs> um,
2: well, why is... Um oh. Well, when I was thinking about the book, before I started writing, I wanted to use the first person because I basically haven't used it before. Um, and I've always been... I used it in a very restricted way in my second novel, but I've always been a bit wary of it. Um, a bit, yeah, wary is the word, because I think, um, you know, especially with women writers it's often just read immediately as straight autobiographical fiction. And I'm someone who makes stuff up. <laughs> <laughs> you know? I really do. I, I kind of... Um, you know, the imagination means a lot to me, the power of the imagination. And so I, I kind of resent it. Well, if It's just, oh, you're just transcribing what happened to you. Um, so there was that. So I've always avoided it for that reason, and um, I guess I had become used to writing in the third person and developed a certain kind of facility with that. And, and you know, the first person, I mean, the third person is kind of beautiful. You know, it allows you to do all kinds of stuff. You know, it's like the. I don't know, it's like the literary equivalent of oil painting or something. You know, it's, you can get great effects, you know, you can go in close, you can move out further. It's, it's just a sort of fabulous way um, to, 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 to approach narrative. But then, you know, I think I, what I fear above all, is just repeating myself. And so for the very reason that I felt I could do that sort of third person, I must stay away from it now and write first uh, third person. I must um, go into the first person. And then, um, and this will seem crazy to you, Christos, because you've done um, so much work in the first person and done it so, so fabulously. But I started writing the the first narrative in the first person and, you know, wrote about 2,000 words. And when I read it over, I was... I mean, I was just mortified at how bad it was. You know, it was just, just shockingly bad. And I panicked really badly. And I thought, OK, well, I can't do first person. So I'm going to do... I'm going straight back to my happy place. I'm not going to walk towards that fear. I'm retreating. And I am going to write in the third person. So I rewrote this passage in my favorite third person after a lot of panic. And then... I read it over, and it was mortifyingly bad. It was just so bad. And then I remember the thing that I managed to forget between each book, which is that first draft is always oh. mortifyingly bad. Do, do you oh agree that? Oh, my God, yes.
3: Uh, and it is one of the things that I've, it is really frustrating that I, I really... Uh, writers I love who... Ne- who want the first draft to be perfect and yeah. they never finish the bloody book because <laughs> that feeling of, oh, my God, it's shit, <laughs> you know, like the first, you know, uh, 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 for me, it was that first draft of Damascus, which was shit because I, I was doing actually the opposite, like kind of trying to fi- to play with third person, to yeah. try and put, you know, to, to imagine... Uh, the world, and to do what you so beautifully said about the co- going in and coming out that you can, you know, it, it, the, the oil painting, and it wasn't working. It was so lifeless on on the page. And I, I remember saying to Wayne, my partner, just goes it's fucking shit, you know, <laughs> um, and should I... And But I, there was something that was really... It, I wanted to tell that story, right? So I went, I've got to tell the story. I was being really stubborn about it. So I'm wondering, was it the same then for you and Scary Monsters? So you, you, you did the first person, you did the third person. Was it there was something about this story?
2: Well, it was just they were both, they were both so, I mean, it was equally bad. So I thought I might as well go yeah, back yeah, yeah, yeah. and do the first yeah. person because at least that means I'm doing something yes. different. I am taking that risk. Um, I mean, it's, it, you know, the thing is, halfway through the book, um, whatever, you know, however you're writing it, you have this terrible moment where you think this yeah. will, you know, slow up despond. have You fall in. You, well, I rent a room in there for, you know, weeks, really, saying, I can't do this. It's terrible. Um, I just can't go on. This will never work if, it, if I ever get to the end. Uh, who would want to publish it? In fact, I wouldn't want
1: them to publish it because you know, it's, you know all I'm those, gonna, yeah, <laughs> you yeah, know all yeah, of that. Yeah, yeah. Isn't uh, it so reassuring to hear these things <laughs> about failure in this way?
2: You, I'll tell you the most wonderful thing that my partner says to me in every book because I forget every time. Uh, he's he he he's an academic and he's seen many many students postgrads through, you know, theses, and he says to me, you know. When you, think, when you say it is not working, what's actually not working is a tiny thing. Find that tiny thing don't just say it's not all you yeah, know it's yeah. the whole thing is terrible because it's not you, and it's so true you uh, you know when you do this you, you go back and look at it and you can isolate sometimes it's just a paragraph that 's not working oh it's a scene. you know you've made an Character do something that mm, kind of takes you in directions that don't yeah. make sense. You just have to delete. It.
3: Yeah, the, the wrong road, but you've but, got to go down that wrong road. That is yeah. for me what the first draft is, and the second draft, and the th- yeah. it's it's the redrafting that gets you to use the, the form and find the story. I mean, what was in, <laughs> what happened with Man Seven and a Half, uh, and I mean this quite. Honestly, uh, Michelle. So I started a book called Resentment, which one I wanted it to be a, bit, a book about our times and the pressing political questions of our times. And fucking sorry, it was really shit. It was really lifeless, and it was also um, I couldn't I couldn't bring it to life at all. And partly, uh, I think it was because those questions seemed so enormous, and I realised. When I read Scary Monster, wow! Of course, I I was carrying this heaviness, and I know you think about these things so deeply, but you you I thought uh, there is an admiration that is actually not envy. It's just an admiration for what a fellow writer does and does so bloody well in in, in Scary Monsters. Um, and so I've kind of I will never go back to resentment because I you know it's it's not a I, <laughs> But those questions, then, I started asking myself, who, who can write these stories? Who can write these stories about race? Or who can write these stories about sexuality? Who can write these stories about gender? Who can, all those questions that have been are around us. This is, you know, the last decade or so, about authority, right? Who is the I, <laughs> right? And I am, in March 2020, in the UK, it is... Damascus has just been released there, doing a bit of publicity work, but then Wayne and I are going to go and spend six weeks travelling around the UK to celebrate 35 years, right? And within a week, the world shuts... It, you know, we had to leave, and we're very fortunate that we, we could get a plane out, that we came back really fortunate we could do quarantine at home at that time and didn't have to go into a hotel. Uh, and I woke up the second morning, jet lagged and I started writing seven and a half. Right. And I did it partly. There isn't anything magical about it. I I did it as partly an exercise because this is what I do. I'm a writer and the book I wanted to write, which I thought was going to call resentment, was bad. (laughs) And I started writing seven and a half as an exercise to 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 just keep writing. And that's something we do right as writers. We have to write. That's how we learn what we're doing.
2: Yeah.
3: Just, oh. yeah, 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 yeah. It all makes sense. Yeah, and it, it was, it was. I just, and I think though, those questions of authority and the eye. You know, they're, they're, that, that's part of seven and a half, and also it's partly I found the way to tell the sweet thing story and get it out. Hmm. and i 'm really glad I did that because that was a story I wanted to get out you know and to 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 let it to, to leave it to now you know because hmm. when there 's stories that 's the thing about the imagination, you become obsessed yeah, yeah. and, and I, I was trying it as a play, I was trying it as a film script, I was trying it as all these different things and it you know and it found its place in seven and a half but the Again, there was nothing magical. It was only by doing the, process, the work of writing that I discovered what I wanted to say and how to say it.
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But how far into the writing did you find the way to tell the, the
3: novel within the novel? Uh, I So at one point I had, uh, you know, I had 30,000 words of this novel called Resentment, mm. and I had about 15, 20,000, no, 15, 17,000, I mean, just, you know, of seven and a half, and I actually trust Wayne's instincts. He's not a writer, he's not a, you know, he's a cartographer, a very different world, but he's a beautiful reader, and he's also a really honest reader, but not cruel, you know, mm. that combination is yeah, yeah, it's for, right. so <laughs> precious. And he went, Christoph, it's clear which one's working. OK. Okay. It's clear... That doesn't mean it is working completely, but it's clear which one I want to read. And I, and I realised that the pleasure that I was having as a writer in writing Seven and a Half meant that that was the book I needed to go with. Sometimes there is the hard work of working on a book uh, and you, for a while the pleasure isn't there, like, you know, that's yeah, yeah. Damascus. But with this one it was right from the get-go, and I think part of the pleasure was that I was just taking the risk of finding how to tell the story in
1: writing the story, right? Yeah, yeah, that's beautiful, and and what I'm hearing is this focus on the labour of writing, the imaginative labour that must go in, the stubbornness, and it's more than stubbornness, it's a sense of shamelessness, which your narrator talks about in the work, and I think it's about audacity as well, you know, the audacity to keep taking these risks with language, with form, but with language. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that, Michelle and Christos, about the use of, um, how you mold language to tell uh, these stories and to take these risks. Oh, gosh. Um, yeah, that's a big question. Um, okay. I, <laughs> but i
2: uh, I know you asked the big questions, <laughs> um, I, I guess, Okay, I come at that uh, at a slight angle, I think, which is so... um, I mean, I I go back to the thing I was saying at the start, that I don't think it's an accident, Christoph, that you and I are doing this at a certain stage in our careers.
1: That's right,
3: yeah.
2: And um, I'm sure you know um, Edward Said's um, book on late style, where he talks about... I mean, he talks mainly about um, composers and how, you know, um, certain famous um, composers... Um, towards late in their careers, just kind of, you know, um, started producing work that was really different from their earlier work with a kind of, you know, I don't care what people think about this. I'm doing my thing because, you know, they've reached this certain stage. So, you know, he, he um, I suppose, Rowena kind of is talking about a kind of mm, shamelessness, risk-taking, not caring what the response is. I'm I'm sort of interested in a way more in what um, so Michael Hoffman's take on this is what he calls old style, which I quite like, old style Um, and he defines old style as being brisk and grand and plain okay, now brisk I think we can do, it's to see how you can do brisk. it's Mostly a matter of taking stuff out, right? And about you, I love that delete function. Uh, yeah, yeah. Really do. Um,
3: I, it, I, I love the red pen.
2: Yeah, the red I... pen. Great too. You know, draw. <laughs> so satisfying. Draw a line through it. Um, and you know, it just immediately, kind of, the pace of your narrative improves, right? You know this, Joanna. Um, you're a very briskly beautiful writer yourself. Um, so, brisk is okay. Plain, I mean, Hoffman's examples are people like Rilke and um, Wallace Stevens and Pound, I think. So, I'm plain, I'm not entirely <laughs> yeah, okay. sure, but I'm, I'm guessing he means lucid, you know, precise. I don't know. Grand is the hard one, right? How do you do mm. grand? I have no idea. I'm hoping that if you do brisk, and plain, that grand somehow arises out of this thing. You know, but yeah, working on your sentences, basically. I I really do believe, Christos, again, I don't know what your take on this is, but, you know, if you fix the sentences, other things take care of themselves.
3: Yes, I think the the other word I would add to that, Michelle, is uh, a play that is part for me of, of, of writing, you know, and, yeah. and not to forget that now what I find magical, what I find beautiful, what I find selfish even in, the, in what we do is that we can use the imagination. That isn't, a, like, I, I, I know my fortune I, that we, we can do that. That the struggle is hard to get it right and that's about getting the right sentence, but it's an, it's an, an, an astonishing fortune to work with words to try and I think maybe that 's part of that old style mm. in the sense of going that 's what matters now to to me um, i I remember years ago reading that wonderful alex ross book uh, the rest is noise a history of the 20th century uh, uh, which were, which was about classical music which i didn 't grow up with so it was an education it made I love that book because it made me go and educate myself on classical music but There was a beautiful section on Sibelius and where he talked about Sibelius was so out of fashion. But and there's a love, oh it's so long ago, I'm I'm not gonna do it justice, but where Sibelius said, just let me have my room to do my work as a craftsperson. And that has really stayed with me. And I hadn't, the other thing about a quarter century now of doing writing in this world is also realising there's fashions. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and there's... And you've got to... I, I want to be really careful to follow what I... You know, that selfishness I talked about, I want to follow what I want to do. Mm. <laughs> you know?
1: Which brings me to something that I've been meaning to ask you, Christos. Your narrator says early on, politics, sexuality, race history, gender, morality, the future, all of them now bore me. The the narrator wants to write about beauty, but isn't all beauty, the recognition of beauty, the validation of beauty, always about context and um, always about beauty in relation to ugliness or at least in relation to what surrounds it, to politics, race, history, gender, morality, the future. What does Christo, the narrator, um, envision? Why does Christo, the narrator, envision a separation of beauty from all that surrounds it and gives a definition? I would love to hear what you were trying to do with that idea of beauty and everything else falling away.
3: One of the things that English has is a particular form, a way of using capitals and the proper nouns and the... So in that section, the Christo character, it's capital R race, it's capital S sexuality, it's capital G gender. um, And that's a very conscious decision I made to alert the reader to a question that's being posed. I think the so you're writing a book that has a a person called Christos Cholkis as the I narrator. So people are going to go, yeah, this is autobiography. Actually, I knew it wasn't autobiography. There's a character called Andrea in the book, and very early on she and Christo have an enormous argument about what um, being a writer means in today's world. I am as much Andrea as I am the Christo in the book. These are the arguments I'm having with myself. These are the arguments over late night with someone like Michelle we're talking about trying to work out. uh, from my very first book, People, and it is about the use of the word I, the I, right? Is, uh, is this autobiographical? Is this autobiographical? Is this autobiographical? The question is frustrating. <laughs> no, I am a fiction writer. I get it. I absolutely get why the question's asked. But uh, the, the Seven and a Half is about going, yes, some of what I'm writing comes from the earliest memories of... Being in the Orthodox Church and smelling the incense, but also smelling the sweat off, uh, off a man's neck and smelling the perfume of the women, right? That's yes, that is what forms my idea of what is beautiful. You know, the so I'm, I'll, I'll try and get straight to the point. The book is a descent into Hades, both the narrator's story, but also Paul's story from Sweet. You're going so, beauty is not for me an anodyne concept. When I was rereading Genet, some of the most powerful moments in um, *Our Lady of the Flowers*, for example, are shocking, and they're beautiful. And it is that—that that is what I'm trying to understand. I don't know if I've worked it out, but that's what I'm trying to understand in the writing of this book: that that beauty is. You know, it's a very classical notion, of the, the notion of the sublime, you know, that, that you stand in awe of the world. And I am in... I, 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 I wanted to write about that awe, Roanna. I think that was... That, for me, was very important. And I think the capitalised words sometimes get... They felt like they were getting... in, in they, were, they felt like they were stopping me seeing, and in that way, they were affecting my imagination. I'm sorry, does that make sense, Michelle? Yeah.
1: Yeah, Yeah, as a reader, I felt confronted by that grappling with the sense of the sublime with what is beautiful, what is considered beautiful culturally, but also universally. Um, And, yeah, absolutely, it made me really interrogate my own assumptions about beauty and uh, the context of it. So, thank you. (laughs)
3: <laughs> um. I'll, I'll say this really quickly Just, there's a, the line that made sense for me that was when, I, when the narrator says this is not an English book and I know mm-hmm. I can say between the, with, with us here together yes of course it's an English language book that's, my la- that's the language I write in but there's something else that's coming in that book which is another form of art and history and I'll just shut up there, but that, that's, that's really important to me. That was why I went back to the, that book really... I mean, he's at the coast, but it's that... The opening of the book for me is when he is the little child back in the Greek Orthodox Church. And that's saying... I'm hoping that's saying something to the reader about, well, this is a world that is going to make sense of the English of this book. You know, this is not an English book.
1: Yeah. It's not an English English, book, in one sense. As as one of the characters says, uh, I think Christo says, it's um, not written by an English man or an Mm. English woman, English person. Um, And yet, it is a book written in English, (laughs) in many Englishes, in that sense. Uh, Michelle, I wanted to ask you uh, a question again about something that you mentioned earlier, about this being a broken book. Um, But it is a beautiful book. I want to ask you about that brokenness and that uh, decision to to write the the two stories, one set in the past, one set in the near future, um, and call them a novel. Why are they not two novellas? I think perhaps some readers feel that it is
2: just two, well, not just, I mean that it's two novellas rather than a single narrative. There is a, a potential narrative bridge Between the two stories. But it is only potential because, again, I wanted the reader to decide is that really a link or not? Mm -hmm. Again, you know, my idea of reader agency. Um, And the broken book, the idea was that, you know, migration breaks lives, Mm. that there is then always a before and an after. Um, And Again, going back to my, you know, thing of the novel as um, as a form, and to what extent can we push, 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 push that form? Um, and, you know, um, is it, it is what you have left at the end, um, a novel or not. So I, I would think of that question as still being an open one, but... You know, in my mind, I absolutely conceived of it as a single project and as a single novel. Um, I mean, there are, you know, I keep saying radically discontinuous, and it is in many ways. There are some continuities, like the fact that they are both first-person narrators, they are both Asian migrants. You know, I'm perhaps making the point to...
1: Yeah, yeah, no. A completely. To me, it, it felt like it was. It was um, one, one big story that had two separate ways of of, of approaching story, actually. Um, and just to go back to what you were saying earlier about, uh, was it Michael Hoffman who talks about um, briskness and plainness? And in some ways, you talk about. Um, putting pressure on the novel as a form um, and the, the sense of radical discontinuity. And, and to me, that seems like, again, moving towards plainness, letting all of the traditional markers of narrative continuity fall away mm-hmm. and, and seeing what, you, almost what you can get away with. Indeed. <laughs> <laughs> but you have to by the book to see what Michelle can get away with I can and I what get away you with can it. get away with as readers. Um, but this brings me to that idea of um, the manipulation of chronology in both your work. You play with time in very interesting ways. Christos, your book kind of unfolds loosely chronologically, but within that frame, there's a lot of back and forth. There's uh, a sense of what Michelle does in, act, in um, the, lives, um, uh, the life to come, the sense of a deferred understanding uh, where you give us almost the end of an argument. And as a reader, I'm going, wait, what? And then there's 20 pages of the premise and the, the argument unfolding itself. And then at the end of those 20 pages, as a reader, I go, ah, oh, now I get it. And that's, that's a very beautiful, skillful thing to do and just magical for a reader to apprehend in the work. Um, I was just wondering if you could both talk a little bit about how you uh, manipulate time on the page. Michelle, of course, in your book, Michelle's book, it does not, each section does not start at the beginning. It does not end at the end. In fact, both sections end in the middle, in the middle physically in the book, but also... Uh, not quite at the end of the narratives in each of the sections. So I was wondering if you could both talk about that process of composition when you're working out, okay, how do I organise the story, the timeline of the story, which is different from the timeline of the, the events unfolding in your characters' lives?
3: I think that's one of the... When Michelle talked about loving the delete function... And, love, and loving the red... That's actually one way of you do it, right? Yeah. <laughs> is that, because it is in those moments where you go, actually, I thought I needed to get A to meet C and D and I had to go through this. What happens if we start with A and suddenly we're, we're, we're with C and D and A and I don't have to do the whole explaining of how we got there and trust that the reader, the reader will, will make that jump? This is... F- uh, this, for me, is what I owe cinema as an art, right? Um, I, I also owe it, of course, to literature. I've learned to write by loving books from very, very young. But it is actually film, I think, that is, is one of the ways, I think, of how to tell story and how the jump cut, how the edit, how, the, uh, how those formal technical questions... How do I do it as a as a writer I mean, that's you know that has been uh, part of how i 've been thinking about the the novel and the short story for a very long time now particularly the novel I think yeah to be, um, oh, even when um, uh, we, you were just talking before I, there's a a wonderful Thai film Syndromes in a Century, which is such an inspiration for me because. It tells the same story twice. Do you know it, Michelle? It's, it's beautiful. It's the same love story, but one is set in a peasant world and one is set in a cosmopolitan urban world in Bangkok. What happens if you tell the, if you actually tell the same story, but you have different settings? That's the, that's the great thing of loving art, of loving cinema, of you go, "Oh, I wonder if I can do that as a writer." Yeah. And what would that mean, you know yeah. Yeah. So that film, for me, is really important mm. to that question.
1: That's that's beautiful. Thank you. Michelle, what about you um, in relation to the way you use time on the page and chop up your chronological <laughs> um,
2: story? Um, well, I think one thing would be that um, it goes back to that question, that, you know, the central kind of question of migration. So Lyle, uh, who's one of the narrators at some point, says you know, after you migrate, the past is no longer a guide to the future. Because obviously, when you change countries, you know, your way of apprehending the world, uh, you can't rely on what you knew in the past. And your way of being apprehended by the world, the way you are seen and perceived, will also um, shift. So, uh, for me, with the reader, this was again a little way of... um, you know, making the form of the novel embody the ideas in the novel. Because no matter which, which narrative the reader reads first, the one set in the past or the one set in the near future, it won't necessarily be a guide to help you make sense of what you are experiencing now. So, that was my way of playing with um, chronology. And I actually think the designer did a really um, super clever thing with the cover, because, um, so here's a cover with um, blossom on it, and here's one with a cherry on it. And of course, blossom precedes fruit. But she put the blossom on the one set in the future and the cherry on the one set in the past. So I think that was clever. So, you know, which comes first, the future or the past? Um, So uh, that was a very nice um, detail that
1: that she she, um, came up with. And on that question, which comes first, the future or the past, I'm going to open it up to questions from the audience. If any of you have uh, questions to ask of... Michelle De Kretzer and Christos Cholakis. We have time for a couple of questions. Um, there's one up here on screen from uh, someone who, from Liz from Geelong. Hello, you Liz. <laughs> Christos, do you think you're coming to beauty as your focus for seven and a half is because you now have the wisdom and experience to trust your own instincts, your heart and f- feeling, rather than grappling with intellect and exploring the capital letter issues such as gender, sexuality, etc.
3: I think part of what happens to that question and you know you know this Michelle is it's not when you finish the work of your of a book that book is finished right but there was something the previous novel was called Damascus and it took me seven you know it took me a long time to write and it was it was a novel about the what was Christianity before it was Christianity? Like faith, and going back to those questions, going back to that theology, going back to philosophy, going—it was incredibly liberating for me, both as a writer but also as a human being—to go. These are, this is a, a place that I haven't dwelled in for a long time, and it, it, and it does shift the way you look at the world, right? That's, I think, that's what happened in the in the process of, uh, of writing. Damascus. And just really quickly to that, I would say that when I, why I talked about the, you know, flee, fleeing, it felt like just coming back from, from Europe in 2020, it was with an absolute sense of gratitude that I had a home to come back to
1: mm.
3: and yeah. what that means. Yeah,
1: beautiful.
3: You know, I've got really serious questions about my place here, and, but it was, you know, uh, Yes. That, I think that's what led
4: to, to, to that book as well.
1: Beautiful. Thank you. Uh, we have a question uh, from the audience. Thank Here.
4: you. Um, could I uh, agree with um, our moderator today in saying that both of uh, the people we've got speaking today are national treasures, and um, <laughs> it's been incredible to hear your theory of everything and explaining your processes. <laughs> Very inspirational. I'm sure most people would agree. Yeah. Um, Uh, My question today is for Christos, um, and I really enjoyed you uh, explaining how cinema influences uh, your writing. Um, I've recently seen the film Memoria, and I'm wondering... I actually saw it three times. I don't normally watch films twice, but I actually watched this film three times, and I found it quite profound in a lot of ways. I'm just wondering, have you seen it, and do you have an opinion on it? I think it is a stunning... Work.
3: Um, it's actually the same director as Syndromes in a Century. Um, I think what's uh, It's like uh, someone who is attempting, actually, actually, to say what is beauty and how is uh, how do we remain in awe of this world without uh, without forgetting. That actually, the past and the present are, 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 are never gone. Like all his work deals with that in the most. And I, I just, for me, that kind of cinema, that kind of writing. I mean, when I'm when I'm sitting for pleasure, I'll, I love Agatha Christie for pleasure, right? But, but when I really get most excited about a, um, a film work or a, a book is when I have to do that kind of work. I think it is. Uh, <laughs> This is another conversation to have one day at a festival, I'd love to do it, that, that question of how do we talk about the sacred in a secular language? And I think that film is attempting to do that. That's what I'd say about it.
1: Thank you. We have um, another question from the audience and, and one uh, from Tasmania. Uh, I'll ask this question and maybe the writers can decide which ones they would like to answer. Um, so from Tasmania, what do you each consider to be your first language? Do you feel having multiple languages enriches your writing? Would you like to ask your question now? I'm just conscious we're, um, we have a few more sure. minutes. Well.
0: Um, my questions for Michelle. Uh, thanks for writing your book. I enjoyed it. Uh, I found the characters' experience very um, sp- specific, but also very universal. I related to it a lot. And um, my experience with race as also an Asian person, um, half Sri Lankan courtesy of my dad up there, um, has changed over time. Um, I was like a young brown, only brown boy in a, a, a white school in the northern suburbs of Sydney. And then I moved to London. And then post Black Lives Matter, I think my relationship with race has changed again initially when I was younger from one of submission and assimilation to one now that I think almost borders on anger in a way and I kind of sense that in your book um, and I was wondering if you, maybe this is a question for my therapist not for an author but like, uh, <laughs> uh, I, I was wondering how, how um, if you've kind of thought of how to alchemize the anger that I kind of feel in your book into something a bit more a bit more fruitful, a bit more um, future-looking, and a bit more loving or something.
2: Gosh. Um, <laughs> thank you so much for that question. Um, it's, a, it's a terrific question. I guess for me, I, I write. Um, do you have some kind of creative um, practice?
0: Uh, y- oh, yeah, uh, music.
2: Oh. Fantastic. Well, you know, I would say channel it into that and see what happens. Um, why not?
3: <laughs> That's
2: beautiful.
1: Thank you. That is the best um, advice. Would you like to say anything about the question on language before we uh, bring the session to a close?
3: I'm really... Uh, I've told this story, but it is actually true. When I first started school, I didn't speak any English. So I was in a... Um, uh, I was in a class of immigrant and refugee kids uh, for a period, uh, even though I'd grown up in Australia. And I'm, I write in English because I'm more... that is the language I was trained in, if you like. And I love the English language. Um, but I'm really glad I have Greek as a form... ..even something as simple, because gender plays a different role in the, in the language you can steal from it and put it in the English language and, and playful, strange, wonderful things can happen. Just, yeah. yeah,
2: totally. And, I mean, just to say, you know, the, the second part of that question was, um, does having another language enrich your writing? I hope that it enriches my thinking because yeah. um, the moment you shift languages, you shift your way of... Um, apprehending the world, your way of understanding the world, so you know, It's one
3: of the things, Michelle, that I, you know, I've I've probably just been in your ear about this for so many decades now, (laughs) but I hate it about our education system and language here. It is the arrogance of being an English language, you know, forgetting what languages we have here and historically have had here profoundly for millennia, like you're absolutely right. When you have to think in another language, you're open in a different way to... Oh, there's an empathetic relationship that happens with language.
1: Yeah. Beautiful. Would you like to say anything? Yeah. Okay, and on that note, kind of unfurling into the future of um, um, being empathetic with language and, and thinking in multiple languages... I would like to draw this session to a close uh, and to also say that Michelle and Christos will be available to sign copies of their books. (laughs) Uh, Thank you for being such a great audience. Please join me in thanking Michelle de Kretzer and Christos Tautic for being just so fabulous.
0: Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please remember to subscribe and to rate our channel.